You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. So, Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing all right because I, I was able to replenish my my supply of black pencils. Oh, there's a Ticonderogas? Ticonderoga black pencils. Uh, they, they are they are second to none. Well done, sir. And since yes. I since I try not to buy anything that isn't black, like shirts, pants, <laughs> shoes, hats. Um, this is very. This is your intense Neil Gaiman homage. Like even the pencils must be black. Mm, You're gonna have the Peter yes. Griffin closet. Like someone opens it up and it's just like green pants, a shirt, like over and over again. Like that Except whole thing. They're not green and white, but yeah. But yeah, the, the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and there was an adventure to get these because I ordered them online and uh, they are the world's best pencil, apparently. And, it, therefore, uh, in high demand, one would assume. Yeah, because yeah. what happened was I was waiting for them and they never showed up. And then Amazon said, oh, sorry, there was a problem. Uh, we canceled that order and I had to reorder them. Well, so. that's just inconvenient. But so yeah, I, I, like, okay. I like the black pencils. So if the Patrick uniform, as it were, is is the all black sort of thing, what is there a James L. Sutter uniform, James oh, L. Sutter? You know, once upon a time, it probably would have been the black T-shirt. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of the standard band guy look, right? Like it's the jeans and the T-shirt, like mm, always. Yeah, yeah. Always kind of ready to roll, you know, yeah. infinitely, infinite recombinations and so on. Yeah. Fantastic. That, well, thanks for being the, on with hold us. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Is that the Seattle oh, grunge band outfit? No, or? I mean, I feel like grunge <laughs> was more of a uh, was more of a loose flannel, like weirdly sort yeah. of frumpy look in some ways. I feel like uh, my fashion sense definitely solidified during sort of my years in hardcore and metal bands back in sort mm. of the earlier 2000s. And so you know, I can also go, I can love a like tight plaid flannel, like button up, but like, it's really just all about the jeans and the t-shirt. It's like the universal band guy uniform. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's also a perfect band guy uniform because if you happen to be like gigging across state lines and doing a lot of travel or something and like someone forgets their bag somewhere, or if you happen to have enough of a, a gig going that you're actually flying somewhere and your bag gets lost, replenishing the wardrobe is really just a stop by hop topic away, you know, right. so you can kind of fix <gasps> right. the problem real easy. Is Hot Topic even still around? I have no idea. Oh, it's very – like I, I live in the Chicago suburbs and although malls in general are dying, Hot Topic and Cinnabon are doing their damnedest to keep it going. <laughs> they really are. I'm glad. You know, it's funny. I'm always surprised <laughs> when I go on like Wikipedia. It makes me feel a million years old when I go on Wikipedia and see like, you know, the page for emo or something will be like <laughs> we're on like the third or fourth revival of emo where it's like gone away and come back and gone away and come right, back. Right, right. Like, and you know what? A lot of the music that the kids are making from those old genres is really good. <laughs> it's, it's like I'm so happy to see the children connecting with the things that I connected with at that age. I was deeply thrown recently when I um, I, I took my son to the mall. I mean, my whole family went to the mall. And it was mostly just an exercise in the weather was was shit and we wanted to 
be able to go someplace where we could walk around a lot. Um, right. And so my son being 16, you know, was more on his own recognizance and we were sort of shadowing our daughter different places and sort of letting him do his own thing, meet us at the food court at whatever o'clock. Um, he ended up coming out of, of Hot Topic and my, my head just about spun off my shoulders. He bought a Bjork sweatshirt. And I was like, you know who Bjork is? You know who Bjork is enough to want a Bjork sweatshirt? They make Bjork sweatshirts? Like this is, I was just, I was absolutely floored. He wore it to school the other day. I'm like, it is 85 degrees. Why are you wearing a Bjork sweatshirt? He's like, I like it. And I'm like, I, okay. So this is fascinating. And this actually ties into um, something that I've thought about a lot in the context of now that I'm writing young adult fiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Something that's really changed in, I think, the last decade and certainly the last few years is that when we and each previous generation were kids uh, or teenagers, uh, all the media we consumed was sort of defined by what was available, what was on the radio, what was on TV, what was in theaters. And so we all have, we're used to this idea that, oh, you're defined by the music that was popular when you were 16 or 17. And we've all seen that thing where, you know, like everybody's, everybody's concept of what good music is, was the thing that they listened to when they were 16, right? But the interesting thing about nowadays is that with streaming, all music, all you know, film, everything that's been made is available to teens. And so they don't have that same Mm-mm. monoculture to access. They don't have the same sense of being defined by what's on the radio right now. And so you'll end up with, you know, teens now will like stuff that was 10, 20, 30 years old. And it doesn't even register as a problem for them. I remember like when I started getting into writing young adult, I was asking my friends with teenagers, you know, what do they what are their favorite, you know, movies? What are the things that they love? And they make no distinction between a movie that came out last week and a movie that came out in 1950. You know, they just yeah. consume whatever media they feel like. And I feel like it creates a fascinating uh, just breadth of culture within that age group. And I'm really yeah. curious to see how it continues. Yeah. Like I, 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 completely agree with you. I mean, partly from my experience with a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old living in my house. Mm. Um, they actually do belong to me. They're not just squatters. Um, right. So I should probably be clear about that. And uh, and also my experience like teaching in a high school environment. Um, and so I see this all the time. And there's this meme that goes around and you kind of see people kind of crap posting about this kind of thing on Facebook and whatnot. Um where like I, there was a 16-year-old or something I saw and they were wearing an ACDC shirt and I asked them what that was or to name three songs and they couldn't. And I was just like so ashamed because they thought it was about electrical engineering or something. Like that's that's a meme, right? I fucking right, yeah. dare you if you see a kid wearing a Nirvana shirt or Foo Fighters or I don't know, pick something, right? Right. Where you're like, how did? there's no way they know what that is. They just bought it because they like the logo at Target or something. I fucking dare you to walk up to that kid and to play that whole name me three songs game because yeah, they're going to know. Yeah. They're going to know. They're going to make you eat that. Like my son, they bought the shirt. My, my son has developed this because of this type of wide ranging appetite that you just described or like this, this availability that kind of feeds the appetite. He's developed this kind of drive recently to want to see what he calls foundational media And so like his foundational media appetite this summer was like, I want to see 
science fiction horror movies from the 80s. Um, And so he's been lately watching like Predator and the James Cameron, uh, the first Alien um, and Aliens and then Terminator and Terminator 2. Um, And he's he's considering whether or not he wants to go in the direction of like Michael Myers and Halloween and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, But he views it. He's he's excellent in talking about the movies about sort of Hellraiser. putting on the shelf the idea of whether Hellraiser. or not the technology or the okay <laughs> right 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 Hellraiser. Fantasm. <laughs> you know, I'm a bad mom, but I'm not sure I'm that bad of a mom. But anyway, um, Phantasm. So, yeah, so taking t- he's really good at taking the the technology and the makeup and the green screen work, which by his eyes, as someone who was born in 2007, a little wanting and sure. kind of putting that on the shelf and saying, I'm not going to judge it based on whether or not I thought it looked cheap or not, because that's not a fair judgment. He really wants to talk about like the narrative and the characters, and the pacing and the this and the that and the way that he realizes because he saw this, that something else that he saw back here is actually kind of a wink or a nudge and that. And it's been kind of interesting to see that unfold. And so all of this is an extremely long setup to me, <laughs> to me asking, <laughs> knowing this, then, I mean, how thinking about how, how young people's brains are wired this way, this has to have figured into a little bit of your jump into how do I write for this community? Because that yeah. has been the jump you've made recently. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's been really, really helpful actually in that obviously I'm trying to take in what media is popular now so that I'm not totally dated. I think there's a thing that I see somewhat frequently in young adult stuff where for whatever reason, there's one character who's obsessed with uh, the previous generation's media, right? Where it's always like, oh, yeah, no, she, I mean, she's totally a teenager, but she's just got this quirky obsession with music from the 1980s, right? And you're like, that's because you as an author have not bothered to find out what is still popular. <laughs> but I do love that this means that the kids today will get the same references that I get. Uh, because they do have access to those things. And I also love, there's something beautiful and timeless about the fact that it doesn't matter what decade it is. If you walk into a high school, there will always be one kid with a studded denim dead Kennedy's jacket. You know, there will always be a kid in a Nirvana shirt, a Led Zeppelin shirt, like certain, certain archetypes come back around. Um, but yeah, it's been a really interesting jump. So, uh, yes, for the audience who does not yet know. So I spent the first, 20 years of my career in science fiction and fantasy and specifically the the gaming space with tabletop role-playing games. I was one of the creators of Pathfinder and the Starfinder role-playing games. Um, and then also working in science fiction fantasy, both as an author and as the editor of the Pathfinder tie-in novel line for many years. So I got to be part of the science fiction fantasy community. And then in the last couple of years, I jumped over and just published my first young adult, uh, queer young adult contemporary romance novel, which is about as far away as you can get from what, uh, from what I'd done before. And so, uh, yeah, my new book is called Dark Hearts, and it's all about falling in love with the boy who stole your chance to become a rock star. And so uh, music definitely played into it. A lot of it draws on my own experience as, you know, playing in bands, especially as an underage teen playing in bands in the Seattle area. Um, and just wanting to write about that and specifically wanting to write about that feeling of having missed your shot because I played in bands for years, you know, all up through my twenties and got to do a lot of cool stuff, 
but I can very much remember, you know, being 18, you know, having been in a punk band for a few years and looking at the bands coming up behind me, starting to, you know, blow up and get signed and thinking, well, I've, I've missed my shot. You know, if I'm 18 and I haven't made it yet, like it's not going to happen. Like I'm, I'm washed up. And you know, that sometimes feels a little bit ridiculous to adults looking back being like, you have your whole life in front of you. <laughs> but I think our, our culture is so obsessed with the sort of the overnight success, the child star, you know, and a lot of bands do get big right out of high school and college because that's when you have no connections and can go live in a van for nine months, you know, eating Taco yep. Bell every day. And so I think that there's actually hold, hold on, a lot hold on, of hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Those bands can't afford Taco Bell. They're going to Del Taco. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that's think, after gig money is Taco Bell money. Right. <laughs> Not I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, young adults walking around with that feeling of having missed their shot, whether it's in music or theater or sports, especially, you know, everybody who, you know, comes up through their teenage years thinking, well, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be the success story. I'm going to be the, the, I'm going to go pro. And then they don't. And then they're just left with this question of, well, who am I if I'm not the, you know, on my path to stardom the way that I thought I was. And that was something that I really wrestled with. And so I wanted to bring that into the novel. Um, and of course the book is also sort of a, uh, queer epiphany kind of story. You know, the main character starts out thinking he's straight and then realizes over the course of the book that maybe he's not actually straight. And that, you know, very much mirrored my own experience and that feeling of what do you do when the labels you use to define yourself to yourself no longer apply. So that's kind of what the book is about, but it's also a rom-com all about music and stardom and, uh, you know, having crazy adventures in Seattle. It sounds like it was enormously fun to take on as a project. It was. It was. I mean, that's why I did it. Like, it was not, strategically speaking, it was a terrible idea. Like, from a, <laughs> from a career perspective, like, you know, I'd, like I said, I had an existing audience in science fiction and fantasy. I'd been doing that for a long time. I had an agent that specialized in science fiction and fantasy um, who was waiting on my next, you know, novel. Um, and I was working on this big dystopian science horror, uh, novel and then the pandemic hit and I just lost all steam for, you know, dystopian stuff. And I was, I was making no headway and I started reading a lot of young adult romance just as an escape because it's funny and fun. And because the thing that I love about young adult, especially young adult contemporary is that they can't rely on world building. They can't rely on necessarily like plot and giant stakes because usually a young adult contemporary romance, the world is not blowing up. The question is just, are these characters going to get together? And so in order to really succeed, it's 100% voice and character. And so I was just soaking in all of these great books. Um, and then I was reading one day on Wikipedia about uh, Stuart Sutcliffe, who was the original bassist for the Beatles and quit right before they got big. And I was just thinking, what would it have been like to leave a band and then they get famous without you? Then they become immortal and you're just sitting there in a normal life trying to think, well, that could have been me. Um, yeah. 
and so I was just lying in bed having having those thoughts. And then because I've been reading all this romance, I was thinking, and then what if you fell in love with one of those band <laughs> members? And so I leapt out of bed and wrote, just like sat down and wrote the first two chapters of Dark Hearts. And then, and it just sort of flowed out of me. And it, you know, it, I was able to use my own voice in a way that I hadn't really been able to in a lot of the science fiction and fantasy that I've done. Um, it was amazing to be able to just make the references you want to make and kind of, you know, in some ways just tell my own story, especially talking about, uh, you know, being in an underage band in Seattle, um, just that experience. It was very easy to write because I knew it so intimately. And so I sort of sat back after I was done writing those couple chapters and went, this is a, this is a bad idea because nobody (laughs) is looking for this from me. Like nobody wants this from me but it's so much fun to write. And like, sometimes you can just feel the spark in something. Sometimes you just write a scene. Like I, you know, writing is a job. I've been doing it for so long that I can write plenty of stuff and be like, yeah, that's okay. Like that's doing the job. That's pretty good. And then every every once in a while you write something that makes you feel something. It's like, Oh, okay. If I am getting sucked into this, I know that it's going to be good. And so I kind of just followed my joy and went for it. Uh, I did not tell my agent until I was more than like mostly done, actually, because I was afraid she would be like, what are you doing? Um, And she was uh, to her credit. She was very supportive. Um, And then she read the book and was like, yeah, I don't get it. Um, (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is not my jam. Like, I'm an adult science fiction and fantasy uh, agent. And so she very gracefully let me, you know, take it out and find another agent. And that's how I landed up with uh, my current agent, Josh Adams, who I love, who specializes in YA. Um, And that was a really, that was actually a really hard process because there were seven months between when I started searching for a young adult agent and when I got one. And this is my third literary agent. And you sort of expect that thing to get easier as your career goes on. Uh, and it is not, this was by far the most brutal, uh, one, but in the end, after seven months of just feeling like I've made a terrible mistake, uh, I ended up with actually my, you know, my top choice agent and Mm -hmm. he read it, like offered to represent me like a week later. And then uh, two weeks later we'd sold it, you know? And so it was just suddenly this whirlwind from nothing is happening to everything is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about talk about a happy ending. Wow! Yeah, no, it, <laughs> I, I, it really went well. I, I'm curious when when does the role playing game come out? Right, <laughs> dark arts role playing game. Oh my god! The, the, actually, I mean, honestly, that we, there's a there's a book that I gave my husband as a gift a while ago, and oh my, I think you were in on this. Were you in on the micro RPG book from a number of years ago? Uh, um, the, I can't remember. Was that the one from Pelgrane Press? The one where it's I don't uh, remember the like publisher. It's like whatever. Yeah, they're they're all like RPGs that are like two pages of rules only, and there's thirty of them in a in so a you, compilation. If you're talking about the one that Robin Laws did for Pelgrane Press, that I think it was called Hillfolk or something like that. No, uh, it doesn't have Hillfolk in it. That's, well, I, think, I, I think it was I, somehow I, related to it, but um, okay. Yeah, I did do a book like that. I did do a, you know, a two or four page RPG setting. Yeah. And so this was, um, this, this particular book that I'm thinking of, it's just a compilation of like 30 or 50 different micro RPGs that run in anything like 45 minutes up to like a day. 
Um, And the rule is there's like two pages of rules and they cover every conceivable possible theme and vibe. And that was what really interested me about it. Because I've never thought of like a contemporary office romance RPG, but here's rules for doing one. And so, but I, I mean, Patrick, you're being like a little Patrick Louise there, but I also understand at a certain level, like that would be a fascinating way of tapping into the enthusiasm that people have for what YA does as a as a sort of experience because if we think about it as like um we're we're halfway escaping halfway projecting like what is that but what rpgs are yeah yeah well and there's so much in the indie rpg community you can find a role-playing game for anything these days Mm -hmm. uh it's not just you know classic tolkien-esque fantasy Uh, and i think it's really cool that people have have brought in that idea that like no you can do anything with this um and it sometimes blows my mind what they're doing i remember years ago i was talking to uh i think um editor liz grinsky about a a larp uh that they'd done that was just uh like everybody was pretending to be like collectively like a riverbank and i was like what are you talking about they were like oh yeah some people are trees some people are rocks and we all just like hang out and spend time experiencing what does it mean to be a rock on a riverbank? I was just like this, <laughs> these European LARPs are too hardcore for me. Like I, not, <laughs> like, I feel you like need I to make would, a trip to the local dispensary first before you're I, ready for that one. Yeah. It's yeah. like, where were you playing this LARP? Like in a monastery? Like, how do you do that? But, but yeah, but people can do anything in role-playing games. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so bonkers. I've never heard of anything like that before. I kind of love it, but I also, in a kind of, I love that for you kind of way. I don't think <laughs> yeah, I want exactly. to play that that's, LARP. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Like, I'm not eager to sign up, but I think it's amazing that people do it. <laughs> so on the theme of like amazing things happening and doing, um, it's not as if you've you've completely ported yourself into into the dark hearts world of YA uh, romance here. Although certainly it's been, it's been fun and exciting. You still got a lot of other irons in the fire, like a lot of other work that you've been doing that I think people yeah. need to hear more about. Oh, well, so, I mean, I still like, obviously I've not uh, jettisoned the game industry altogether. Um, you know, I left, uh, I stepped down as the creative director from Starfinder back in 2017, but I've still freelanced for Pathfinder, Starfinder, uh, official Dungeons and Dragons as well. Um, I did some stuff recently for their uh, reboot of the Dragonlance setting. And I got to like a few years ago, I got to redo part of the Baldur's Gate setting. Like I got to kind of go in and rework the city uh, Mm -hmm. or sections of the city for their big descent into Avernus adventure. And so I love doing stuff like that. Uh, But I also have written, been writing adventures and things for Pathfinder and Starfinder. And most recently, uh, they started, they finally launched a Starfinder comic book series uh, with Dynamite Comics. And I think the uh, there's two issues out right now, but the series is still running. Uh, mm-hmm. So if people want to check that out. And that's been just a blast, like because it's starring sort of the the iconic characters, the characters that are sort of the the face people for their particular species and classes in the core rule book. And, you know, those are all characters that I either got to come up with or worked with the team to come up with. Uh, And so it's just a joy to go bring those all back and create sort of a guardians of the galaxy style, you know, adventure romp in space. 
And uh, the story is all about, you know, this crew of sort of ragtag mercenaries who uh, get tasked with bringing faster than light travel to a previously uncontacted world. But of course, there's, you know, a previously uncontacted world is a huge possibility, like potential for exploitation. So they're kind of racing, you know, evil interests that have their own plans. Um, But it's just fun to have that sort of zany madcap like uh 80s action comedy you know it's yeah explosions but it's also quips um but i actually interestingly in writing you know in making the switch to writing young adult romance i think it made me a better fantasy and science fiction writer too because now everything that i come to i start by outlining the characters uh you know the character arcs and their relationships with each other and so Mm. even when i'm writing a you know, an X-Men style, you know, team adventure, I still am charting out, you know, all of their relationships with each other, how things grow and change over the course of the series. Like what is the, what is the emotional issue that each character is going to be wrestling with over the five issues of this mini series? And like, how do they change and grow? And I think that doing that is really useful because I think, uh, we don't realize sometimes as science fiction fantasy authors that what people actually connect with at a human level is other humans is characters. And so, you know, you can put all the explosions in that you want, but they have a lot more oomph and impact. If, you know, in the middle of the laser fight, the, uh, you know, hero a is crushing on hero B and hero B is trying to figure out how they feel about their parents and hero C, you know, like when you know what's going on in their heads, it can sort of seep out and inform the action and the dialogue in a way that Mm -hmm. makes everything feel much richer than just like this guy is defined by the weapon he carries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we've got the success of things like critical role and whatnot. Sure. People are are certainly excited about the RPG element, but they're excited about it because of who they're seeing in these stories. Yeah. Patrick, you're in. Oh, I I just I one of the takeaways that I heard from that when he was talking about Starfinder is that apparently in Starfinder, there is no general order one. What is general order one? It's called the prime directive. Oh, oh, yeah. We don't go after we don't go after worlds that are pre-warp societies. I mean, come on. Oh, no. I mean, that we do. but We're capitalists. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, do you really see that happening? Like, I don't know. I mean, the the, the whole deal with Starfinder, actually, uh, when we created the game, um, we specifically put it uh, set it sort of just after the creation or the discovery of faster than light travel, because we wanted to have that sort of land rush element where you're constantly coming into contact with new, uh, with new cultures. Um, in part, because I like the, I like playing with the moral quandaries that come with all of that sort of manifest destiny, you know, stuff where it's like, there are, there are elements of contacting new cultures that are good. And there are elements of contacting new cultures that are really problematic. And I think that those I've always been somebody who thinks that uh, questions of morality at the gaming table are really fun and also really useful. Like we always say, you know, science fiction fantasy, the best thing about it is that you can use it to examine things that people wouldn't be willing to examine if you used real world examples, right? Like you can help yeah. people sort of understand different perspectives and so, I mean, I also, both of my Pathfinder novels that I wrote, uh, Death's Heretic and, the, Heretic and the Redemption Engine, 
have some sort of big philosophical question sort of embedded in it. Uh, like for instance, the death, death's heretic, the question is, what does it mean to be an atheist in a world where gods are objectively empirically real? And then in the redemption engine, it's all about uh, what role does consent play in good and evil, right? Because when you play in these games that have these hard-coded alignment systems that say, you know, a devil is evil, an angel is good. You know, my first question is always, well, if the devil doesn't have any choice about whether or not he's evil, is he evil? Like, how does that, like, how does that play out? Like, or if you have, specifically for the redemption engine, part of the plot is if you had a magic item that could magically turn an evil person good, just change their personality, would that be great because you have just made an evil person into a good person and like contributed to society? Or is that robbing somebody of consent at the most fundamental level? And so that's, like an essentially evil act itself. Um, Yeah. You talked before on YA literature about how there's rarely the stakes of like the world might end kind of piece of it. But I think what you're talking about there is an example of the way that the stakes of speculative stuff can actually more closely resemble those sorts of interior battles and things that we associate with, with non-genre literature, because you can't shoot that question. Right. You can't cast dispel magic on it. You can't fire it out the airlock. Like there's exactly. not a there's not an SF null or or fantasy based solution for you know manifest destiny in space and colonization practices. There's not a you know there are there are ways that different characters or groups or power groups or whatever try to grapple with that and respond to it there are ways that the mechanics of game systems themselves like you just described with you know devils for instance try to account for those things as a reality but they aren't necessarily accountings that hold up to much in the way of scrutiny like if right. we take the game at its word as only a game fine but if we take the game at its word as something that aspires to something greater uh, Well, that's why I love playing with, you know, and I'm not, you know, a strict moral relativist. I do think that, you know, there are such things as good and evil, you know, or at least such things that round up to good or evil. Um, But I, I like thinking about these things and viewing things from different perspectives. Like one of my big disappointments, I remember with the, uh, I think the first of the new Star Wars movies, um, when they've got yet another Death Star that they're yet again blowing up some planet or whatever. Um, I remember they have the bad guys give a speech. There's some sort of rally uh, that the First Order or whatever is giving. And they just didn't address at all any of the reasons why you might like justify to yourself and your people having a Death Star and blowing up planets. Um, You know, it's one of those things where I was like, I walked out of there being like, I understand that Star Wars has never been interested in investigating, uh, in questioning anything, right? It's always they just want good guys, bad guys. You can tell which ones they are by the costume colors. Like, it's fine. Color the lightsaber useful, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I just always have always felt like, man, if they had just given that scene, that speech to like the Game of Thrones writers for 10 minutes, you could have had a really interesting look at what it is people inside the Empire believe, you know, because when I look at something like that, I think you could take any speech from, say, the United States uh, right after 9-11 
you could just scrub Al-Qaeda and put in the Rebel Alliance and leave the rest of the speech the same. And suddenly you would have, you know, something that would feel very compelling to the people in that world and would make us actually have to stop and think about, you know, the the perspectives people have. It's the classic, like, I had friends on that Death Star. You know, like somebody was serving lunch in the cafeteria on the Death Star when it blew up, you know, and not every I get that sometimes people want to just kick in doors and blow things up. And I don't think that that is wrong, but I do think that, uh, <laughs> you know, I've always said if your heroes never question themselves, they're probably not heroes. You know, like you have to actually look at your motives uh, and figure out why you're doing what you're doing. And so that I find that really interesting. I also feel like with every book I write, especially in fiction, uh, or even short story, I kind of can't write it until I know what I'm trying to say, or at least before I know what issue I'm trying to explore. And then writing the characters gets a lot easier because it's all just me talking to me about like essentially arguing with myself about some philosophical idea. Yeah. 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 I mean, and although we're talking about like the ideas that inform storytelling, all of that's part of like this larger creative picture of if you're, I mean, and, and there's a larger creative picture to to whatever, to like a YA novel, to a comic series, to a tabletop role-playing game, world building, all of that. But part of that larger creative picture is sort of like, what do we want this narrative to feel like, to be yeah. part of? And like an individual GM and their, or storyteller, or however we want to use the language, and their players broker that together to some extent, but they choose what setting to play in. They choose what game system they want to play. Also based on like the aesthetics of it, the vibe of it, the way that sure. they feel that that space invites them to tell certain types of stories. And I guess that's owed in no small part to people like the, say, creative director, which you've been <laughs> before. Um, and so thinking about like what putting on that kind of hat for a minute and giving some people who are maybe invested in gaming some behind the scenes knowledge they might not otherwise have. What does it mean to be a creative director? for something where the ultimate goal is to create a collaborative storytelling mechanism. Man. So uh creative director is one of those roles that yeah, I think there's no, you don't know how to do it until you're doing it. Um, and then if you're lucky, you figure out how to do it while you're there. Um, but I think that in many ways, creative director is simultaneously uh, sort of holding a vision for what you want the game to be. Um, while at the same time trying to give up as much control as humanly possible um, and instead empower the people that you're working with and sort of help them help use your own taste to nurture their best ideas and sort of like gently steer them away from the things that don't feel like they fit. I think that uh, creative direction becomes terrible if you get too locked into the idea of this is my game and I am the vision, right? I think that, you know, if you want to do a single person, like you just want to get your exact vision down on the page, like that's fine. Do that. Just do one thing. But if you're going to work in a team, you have to trust your people. You have to train up your people if they're new. You have to listen to the people if they have a lot of experience. And so, uh, you know, I remember telling somebody early on, like one of my team members, like, you know, you think I have all this power, but actually 
you know, I have this very narrow band of power because I've got all these requirements coming from management about, you know, budget and time and like what we want this to do in the market, you know, place, et cetera. And then I've got all of this pressure from below because I've got all these smart, creative people who are on my team who have all these ideas and they may be different ideas than what I want, or they might just really want to do the same thing that I want to do. And so am I going to hoard everything for myself or am I going to parcel it out and let other people do the fun parts? Like that was one of the hardest parts of being a creative director is looking at something and go, that will be so fun to write. Who am I going to give it to? You know, and that was actually one of the reasons. Who gets the candy? Yeah. One of the reasons I actually uh, stepped down after we launched Starfinder was that I just, I realized I didn't have as much time anymore to actually write. I was spending so much time creative directing that I was letting all of these assignments that I would love to write kind of pass on to other people. And I sort of said, you know, maybe, maybe I could just write all the time, you know, because that is my first love. But but, I, you know, I loved being the creative director on Starfinder. And, you know, because, I mean, I had been, I was one of the co-creators of Pathfinder. So there were, you know, maybe eight of us, uh, maybe maybe 10, depending on how you wanted to find it, who worked on Pathfinder sort of in the very beginning. Um, like as staff, you know, you had the writers and the art department and whatnot. Uh, and so it was very fun to be in that mix. But that definitely was not me in control. Um, I was just one of the team. And then with Starfinder, I really got to, because both, uh, like for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why I got to do that is because years before I'd written a book called Distant Worlds, which was detailing the solar system for the Pathfinder setting. You know, Pathfinder is a fantasy game uh, and it's all basically set on one planet, but we knew that there must be other planets, you know, in that same solar system. And so I kind of got clearance from the rest of the team to just invent the rest of the solar system and fans really responded well to it. So then when we were making Starfinder, well, of course we need like uh, a core setting for the game and that solar system seemed like a perfect place to start. So we got to take those planets that I'd created, advance them thousands of years into the future and then make that the setting for this new game. So it was, you know, it, it Starfinder is to Pathfinder sort of what Warhammer 40 K is to Warhammer, you know, it's just yeah. same world, but advanced into the future with all the fun of seeing like, okay, how have things changed? What's new? What's different? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, creative direction is really fun and really tough. And I think you shouldn't do it unless you know how to let go. And I think, and I think one of the ways that I was able to do it well was sort of also not having it be my whole life. You know, I've always, as long as I've worked in the RPG industry, I always had something going on the side, whether it was writing novels, publishing short stories, playing in bands. I always had something that was separate from my job that was just mine. And I think that's really good. I think that's crucial, actually, because it allowed me to then feel less possessive of the work I was doing in my day job and, you know, allow other people to make their mark and say like, that's not how I would have done it, but you know what? That's also a fine way. Let's see what the audience thinks, you know, um, yeah. cause you have to empower people. I, I feel like with as many dimensions as there are to kind of the, the building process of something this huge, we could kind of go on about it for forever, but, but it's probably time for picks of the week, isn't it? 
Yes. <laughs> Picks of the week. Picks of the week. All right. So, ah, uh, um, so to kind of get, I guess I'll get started this time since I think that I you got started on the last one, uh, Patrick. So, um, thinking about. This kind of fits in a little bit with with Starfinder here um, in the idea of sort of a larger world and and so on. This has been my first week back full time at school um, because all things come to an end. Some are amongst them. And that means that I'm back to doing audiobooks regularly because of my long commute. Uh, so my switch from, from paper reading to audiobook reading is complete. Uh, and I had to figure out what to start that with. And I had a bunch of things in my audible queue where I was just not this, maybe later, so on. Uh, and I finally landed ironically on a book that I didn't have yet, but that I saw the description for it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I wanted this, but I want this. And so I ended up downloading it, booting everything that was already in my <laughs> to-be-read pile further back. Sorry, to-be-read pile, uh, because now I'm reading Translation State by Anne Leckie. Mm. Uh, so for those of you who that might be pinging a bell in your ear, that may be because several years ago, Anne Leckie rose to well-earned fame and prominence for the Imperial Roch trilogy, which began with uh, Ancillary Justice and then Ancillary Sword and then Ancillary Mercy. Um, Ancillary Mercy? Yeah, I think that's yeah. where it went. Um, and so with that trilogy, we had this sort of vast but not terribly detailed in its exploration sense of a a science fictional galaxy based uh imperial future um where there are humans and there are other species and the other species about which we heard the most is a group called the presger and we don't see much of the Presger. We only end up meeting one character in the course of the Imperial Roch trilogy, who's what's called a Presger translator, because the Presger are horrifying. They are this difficult, they're incomprehensible to us in their psychology. Uh, they are violent. They have a reputation for uh, up until the point that there was a treaty formed with them, sacking various uh, human establishments and human um uh, trade routes and things like that, and just literally eating and destroying everything. Um, so the Presger are sort of these unknowable, feral, alien beings that do have a culture and standards of their own, but they are inscrutable to humans. And as far as we can tell, they, they seem to exist only to destroy us when they feel like it. Um, and so the Presger have these beings called translators that work for them that are human beings, uh, but they are human beings who have been raised in a kind of Presger creche system so that although they are human in appearance and, and so forth, their affect is weird. They don't think like other humans. And in many ways, they've been altered at the fundamental level to be able to understand the Presger and sort of speak on their behalf in ways that others cannot. Anyway. All of this is to say Translation State is a book set in the universe of the Imperial Roch that's actually not directly interested in anything that happened in the Imperial Roch trilogy. It follows what's going on with the Presger, in particular, um, a character who's tasked ultimately with tracking down a missing Presger translator. And uh, you don't need to have read the Imperial Trotch trilogy to be able to jump into Translation State. But if you, like me, read that trilogy and said, man, I wish I knew more about these completely wackadoodle creatures and what their deal is, this is the book that you needed. So if you don't mind a little bit of vivisection, cannibalism, and extremely weird stuff, check out Translation State by Anne Leckie. 
All right. So, uh, James, how about you? Okay. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna take two, just yeah, yep, so using my guest privilege. Um, so the first one I'll throw out is uh, the novel people may have heard of called Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, um, which is the young adult queer contemporary romance novel that most got me into wanting to write my own um, because it's just, it's so funny. The audiobook is incredibly well done. Uh, and actually I felt very fortunate because Dark Hearts is sort of spiritually akin to Red, White, and Royal Blue. It's also queer romance with a lot of the same sort of style of humor. And so I got to have the same narrator who had, who I'd loved nice. so much at Red, White, and Royal Blue read the mm-hmm. audiobook for Dark Hearts. Um, but, uh, Which yeah, I believe White, is now, a it's a, it's an Amazon prime show too. Yeah, exactly. It's a new mm-hmm. show. So I think that book is going to blow up even more, but it really deserves it because it's just a really funny romance between, uh, the son of the president and the, a son of the Royal family in England. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of, uh, very tropey premises, but it works so well. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm going to recommend that. And I'm also going to recommend on the music side, cause we've been talking about music, uh, Sleep Token's new album, uh, Take Me Back to Eden, is just an unbelievable, like creative uh, genre bashing new, uh, like it's metal, but it's also pop, but it's also R&B in places and jazz. It just, it fuses all of these different things together in some of the most creative, compelling and musically accomplished uh, music that I've heard before. And it's all being done by this band that wears masks and uh, <laughs> pur- purports to be like avatars of this like religion of a God called sleep. Like it's really, it's bizarre and everything about it. The aesthetics are so cool, but the music is amazing. Um, and I'll also throw out hot mulligan and calling all captains are the emo bands that I was most surprised recently to be like, Oh, this is this is exactly how have I never heard these bands? These sound exactly like what I was listening to in 2005. Oh my god, they're they're young, they're babies, like they're brand new. Um, they were born in 2005. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And so uh both those bands do excellent screamo uh and it's been making me so happy to see that that's still around and thriving as a genre. Nice. Hey, Patrick, how about you? Uh I am also going to pick two um because why not uh the first one is there's a there's a uh, i found him on instagram so i think of him as an instagram person but he's got accounts on all social media there's an instagram account called uh what is it that 40 year guy okay and he's a southern guy so of course you know uh he gets extra points for that but uh he he's a guy who he like uh, there's all these hacks and things, life hacks and stuff on the, on the internet. And whenever he sees one, like he, he tries it out himself, but he, he starts out his videos with, are you telling me that for 40 years I could have been doing this? <laughs> Ain't no way. And then he goes off and tries it and yeah. he's just hilarious. He cracks me up and, and, and you know, things like uh, cooking bacon in a really tall spaghetti pan so that the grease doesn't go everywhere. You know, mm. or or he finds out that you don't have to buy microwave popcorn. You can just get paper bags and put popcorn in the bag with a little water or something and put it in the right cooks, you know, stuff like that. And he's just doing these things and he, he gets so 
happy and excited when the things work. <laughs> and so it's just hilarious. And, and so I like that guy a lot, that 40 year guy. Uh, and then you just reminded me, James, of this because um, one of my favorite artists is Susan Tedeschi. And of course, she married Derek Trucks and they formed the mm. Tedeschi Trucks band who's been around forever and they do a lot of stuff. And Derek Trucks was part of the Almond Brothers band. Like he's related yeah. to them somehow. I forget how. Uh, anyway, they uh, they are re-releasing uh, as a 25th anniversary edition, uh, Susan Tedeschi's first album, Just Won't Burn. Nice. And they're re-releasing it on vinyl, which is a thing that I have gotten into in the last year and change is getting back into vinyl. And I've been buying more vinyl stuff and, and you know, I got a little turntable. I need to get a better one. The one I have isn't great, but it works. But uh, I went ahead and ordered this because, you know, I'm just, I loved that album. And, and, and Susan Tedeschi's voice is incredible and it's always been incredible. And it's one of my favorites. And so uh, I, I got that immediately. I think they also, I think I posted on the Patreon page that like they, they're re-releasing um, the Beatles rubber soul on vinyl hmm. oh, yeah. as well. Uh, so like there's, there's lots of stuff like that going on, but anyway, I'm, Tedeschi, I love her. I love that album. Uh, so that's coming out and that's my pick. I wanted to tell, a quick little story, Tracy. I know we're running late, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm playing in a game and Giles is running it. Giles from Beyond the Trope. And it's a D&D 5e game. Uh, I shower every time after I've played it. But uh, when we started, he said he, he wanted to run it with using the Penny Arcade book, Acquisitions Incorporated. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, okay, so uh, we're going to use the acquisitions incorporated and then you guys can use any one other book any other book that you want in developing your character just let me know what it was and i said okay uh, i choose this pathfinder player's guide book that the very kind james sutter sent to me like 10 years ago that hmm. i still have in my library i want to use this and he's like no <laughs> <laughs> no you can't use pathfinder you got to use dd huh. but fair i I thought that that was, that was a story. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, so now that you know that you're blacklisted from Giles's uh, table, apparently, yeah, which yeah, is, apparently. You know, should color any decisions you make about where to spend your time on, on podcasts hey, in the future. <laughs> the other thing I will say is that I'm, I'm, I'm playing a, cause I get bored very easily. I'm playing a paladin who doesn't really understand that he's a paladin. Because when he prayed for someone to like give him the power to do the things he needed to do, none of the normal paladin gods paid attention to him, and actually a trickster god paid attention mm, to him. Nice. And and so the trickster god made him a paladin, but he's the paladin of a trickster god, and so he's kind of loose with the morals, and like he does things that normal paladins don't do. Like he lies to people and he tries, he's constantly trying to convince people to do bad things because he just thinks it's like the easiest way to do it. But yeah, anyway, so that that's the character that I'm playing in that, in that campaign right now, which is kind of fun. Well, I, I should go on beyond the trope and convince him to let you play <laughs> whatever you want. Like that, that'll be my new mission. I think I ended up using like uh, Tasha's cauldron of everything or something as my nice my second book because he, he, he did end up letting me use one other book, but just not a Pathfinder book. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway. Well, 
I know we're running long, but uh, Tracy, uh, yeah. you said your husband had had a question about art, and I wanted to oh, make yeah. sure oh, we did. Yeah. So my my husband um, grew up as many of us of a certain age did uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons, but he got into Pathfinder um, and a little bit of Starfinder a number of years ago. And what got him into it um, was actually just walking past the book in a bookstore. And he did a double take when he looked at the cover and it made him pick up the book and flip through it and then pick, pick, pick up the book and flip through Starfinder as well. And he was just so taken away by the art. And the specific thing that, that my husband uh, articulated was, you know, with, with Dungeons and Dragons and other sort of like Tolkien derivative uh, kind of, fantastical settings there's a tendency for the art direction to be here is our wizard in our robe uh, and they have a staff and they have maybe like a small satchel over their shoulder and that's it or like here is our slinky you know uh cat burglar sort of person and they've got a dagger and a mask and that's it and so there's this insane level of on the one hand fidelity of the art to detail but also a kind of amnesia about what adventuring actually looks like or what, you know, from the player's perspective. And he was just immediately grabbed by the fact that in Pathfinder, people have like bandoliers of scrolls and there's like all these different bags. And like, like there's all the sense of like the gear that it takes to do your job um, that, you know, you don't just have like, here is a phaser on my belt kind of thing. It's like, we can see that there's, you know, tools that are kind of arrayed on your person and things. And so he was just really sort of fascinated by what the connection is between kind of the world vision and the storytelling vision and like how that helps you arrive at knowing that the right art is art that does something like that. Right. Well, so a lot of that whole approach originally came from uh, an artist named Wayne Reynolds, who was mm -hmm. and remains uh, sort of from the beginning has been the main Pathfinder cover artist all the way back yeah. to Pathfinder Adventure Path number one. And, you know, Wayne had been around the industry forever doing stuff and for Dungeons and Dragons and magic and whatnot. Um, but when Pathfinder's first art director, uh, Sean Glenn, um, who was very shortly thereafter, uh, uh, Sarah Robinson took over um, and the two of them uh, worked with Wayne from the beginning. And the thing is, Wayne's style just has all those little fiddly bits like he's a gamer. Yeah. <laughs> And so he likes just drawing all the little details and he'll tell himself little stories as he about these characters as he draws all these things in. And so we realized early on that some of the most fun for us as writers was just telling Wayne like, hey, Wayne, you're a gamer. You understand like what a fighter kind of should be or what a ranger kind of should be. You know, here's a couple of, you know, one sentence of this is a dwarven ranger who uses a crossbow. Go. And then he would come back with these incredibly detailed images. And then we as writers got to have the fun of looking at these characters, looking at all of their like little bits and bobs and thinking, okay, well, why, why does he have that? What's the story there? Right. You know? And so being like, well, that dwarf has a teapot. Oh my God. Maybe he's a dwarf who doesn't drink. Like maybe he only drinks tea and that like makes him sort of an outcast among all the, you know, beer guzzling dwarves he grew up with or whatever, you know? And so, that sort of uh, working from art as opposed mm -hmm. to art always being downstream of words yeah. was really fun for us and really influential in the beginning. And, um, you know, the same thing was true when for Starfinder, we had Remco Troost as sort of the 
main illustrator for and sort of concept artist for the uh, all the big rulebook hardcovers. And I think that that is, you know, a lot of that is about art direction, just in terms of picking good artists and then letting them do their thing and letting them be equally creative. Like, you know, Sarah Robinson, uh, who was for many, many years, the art director and sort of creative director on the art side um, of Pathfinder and Starfinder, you know, she would always tell me, like, look, the artist is going to stop reading after two sentences. You can write yeah. as much as you want in that description, <laughs> but like, keep it simple. And the A, that's because that way you don't run into the situation of, you know, well, you said the sword's in the left hand and they put it in the right hand or whatever. But also, you just got to remember that, like, you're a writer, but the artist is as creative in their own right as you are. And so, like, let them do the thing that they're good at. And mm-hmm. so I think that oftentimes people, you know, once they have the power to order art, you know, it's very tempting to try and get exactly what's in your brain onto uh, onto the canvas. And I think it's usually much better to just give people a loose idea of what you want and let the artist work their own magic so that you can be surprised. Like so many times I've gotten art that is better than I ever could have imagined because I didn't try to hold too closely. And mm-hmm. so I I think that that less is more in art orders uh, is really a, a key. And like trusting your artist, pick a good artist and then let them do their thing. Yeah, yeah. So I guess all of this is to say for our listeners that if if you like the way James thinks about stories and creativity and what what you should let a story and let the people in it do. And, and probably the Probably to bits. check out Dark Hearts. Yeah, yeah. and the fiddly bits. And the fiddly bits. A, and that's my new the phrase. Bits. That's my new favorite phrase ever. <laughs> yep. All the fiddly bits. Sir yeah. fiddly bits. So you should check out Dark Hearts. And uh, also, where where can people find you and it and, and all your other fancy stuff? Yeah, you can find me on my website at jameslsutter.com. I'm also on uh, the site formerly known as Twitter, uh, at James L. Sutter, um, or on Instagram at James underscore L underscore Sutter. Um, you know, I'm always happy to chat with folks and you can find on my website links to all my game stuff, all my novels, all my music. Um, but yeah, right now, uh, Dark Hearts is out in the world in, you know, all formats, whether you like audiobooks or, uh, hardcover or ebook. And uh, there's also the new Starfinder comic book series that issue two is in stores now and three is coming soon. And uh, I think it's a really great way, especially if you are in a game group. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a game master and you want your uh, your group to get into Starfinder, pick up the first issue of the Starfinder Angels of the Drift uh, miniseries and slide it under their door. Yeah, slide it under their door, because I think it's a really good introduction to what the universe feels like what gaming feels like like the big thing that i was trying to capture in writing that comic series was the feel of being in an rpg group where it's you know it's action adventure but it's also fun and funny and everybody there cares about each other because it's a group of friends you know so uh anyway i hope that comes through in the comic fantastic thanks for hanging out with us yeah thanks for having me it's good to be back all good things here we are at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. 
It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think, having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think, as of this recording. It might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode or any of our episodes on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun, and it really, really drives home that we help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret Facebook group, a monthly virtual hangout, or even an extra episode. It's called the Just Us episode of the podcast. And it's exclusively at this point for our Patreon backers. So if you just want to hear Tracy and I talk about stuff, that might be where you need to go. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> When someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.